Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. I first met Chris Howell, wine grower and general manager at Kane, during a press trip in 2015. It became immediately apparent to me that Hall and I shared similar ideas about what makes wine great. His professorial look and thoughtful approach to every aspect of wine growing pay testament to his education and philosophy at the University of Chicago, where he studied before moving on to winemaking. Kane's vineyards form a patchwork among the rocks and trees inside the steep slopes of a bowl-shaped valley at the very top of Spring Mountain. It's here where Hall is most at home and where we began our interview on a windy November morning. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, my name is John Lennart, and I am here today with Chris Hall of Kane, and we are standing up on the uh, top of Spring Mountain. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thank you for coming all the way out here. So tell me where we're at. This is an absolutely stunning view here. Well, we're on the edge of the Mayacamas Range, uh, halfway between San Pablo Bay, that's the San Francisco Bay, and uh, Mount St. Helena, which is the head of Napa Valley, and we're just between Napa and Sonoma. Right here, we're just in the weather clearing after uh, the first of our winter rains. Yeah, we are definitely up here in the clouds. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell me about, tell me about the uh, the fog that comes in off the off off the uh, ocean and the, the 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 mist that's left in the in the valley here overnight. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, that I'm in, intensely aware of is to the extent that we, in growing grapes uh, and then wine, totally depend on the weather. And the weather here on the north coast of California blows in off the Pacific Ocean. Um, the ocean is here only 35 miles away. If you go farther west into Sonoma, you get closer and closer. It's a cold ocean out there. It's a cold, foggy ocean, and all the rain comes from the ocean. And it blows in from the west, and uh, it gives us also our air conditioning in the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a, a cool wind coming in. It's chilly, yeah, but after all, we're talking at the end of November. Yeah, yeah. Uh, end of November, it's probably about uh, 48, 50 degrees right now outside. Um, what, 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 what kind of vineyards are we in here? What are, what, what are you growing? Uh, well, this is a, a mix of Cabernet Sauvignon and related family. Uh, we've got some uh, Cabernet Franc. We've got some Verdot, some Malbec, and some Merlot. Right in front of us is Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh-huh. And you were telling me earlier, a little bit earlier on the drive up here about the, uh, about the soils. Tell me about the soils here. You know, the soils on a hillside form from whatever's underneath. And what's underneath us is sandstone and shale. And so we have relatively thin soils, three, four feet deep uh, with clay. Uh, nothing here is volcanic, nothing very deep. If you come into the Napa Valley proper, you, you see a beautiful carpet of grapevines growing essentially on the valley floor. And those soils have all formed by washing out of these hills and, and laying down there. We call them alluvial. And the reason it's possible to grow really interesting wine from the valley floor is because here in California, it does not rain in the summer at all. However, in the winter, we do get rain on the north coast. We get a lot, and so this is the season of rain. And how much the 
soil can hold, how much water the soil holds, is a key factor in how the vineyard works. On a hillside, the soils are thin. There's not a lot of water. And uh, tough. Yeah, yeah. And the, 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 the making that tough actually is what creates character in the grape. Yeah, it restricts the vigor, it restricts the yield, uh, the berry size is smaller, and there's usually lots of personality. What, what's the personality? It's, uh, let's talk about the terroir. What's the terroir of the land here? What, well, what, what does it bring to the, to the wine? That's an open question. What we do know is when you taste a wine and it tastes differently than from somewhere else, that must be what it is. What we find here is it's a cold vineyard, um, and, and the flavors are foresty, and even herbal, uh, they're exotic, they're not simply fruity, and uh, if you are to go to the old world, they still taste of the California sun, and yet if you're visiting from the old world, these wines are perhaps more familiar than some of the uh, classical Napa Valley wines. Yeah, you think, you think, um uh, Bordeaux varieties, and yeah. you often think hot. Yeah. And yeah. you're up here where it's cool. What what made you right. decide this is the spot for for Bordeaux rather than uh, Burgundy? That is just a super question. Well, first of all, I didn't make these decisions. This project began in 1980 with a couple named Kane, Jerry and Joyce Kane. They had the idea of a, a mountain Cabernet vineyard, and after just a few years, and perhaps only their first vintage, 1984. Uh, they realized that uh, Mountain Cabernet takes a long time to come around. It can be uh, very difficult in its youth to taste. And uh, the idea of blending, uh, as they do in Bordeaux, was an inspiration to them. Um, I arrived much later, 1990, I said, well, that's really wonderful. Uh, but it's very important to say that this project needs to be A, vineyard-based, and B, uh, let's acknowledge that we are not in Bordeaux. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, and clearly. You, I'm sure, have seen Bordeaux, and you know this looks nothing, nothing like Bordeaux. No, not like Bordeaux. And so we have to give up on uh, in every part of the New World. We're always trying to emulate uh, those of the past, but the truth is, we have to find our own way. So here we have this set of varieties known from Bordeaux, and, uh, and yet we're in a completely new environment. So we find our own path, and maybe it's somewhere between Bordeaux and Burgundy and Piemonte, <laughs> uh, and it's not any one of those. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into wine. I mean, okay. You, so, so this this they opened Canaan in eighty four. In eighty, nineteen eighty. In eighty, yeah. and you came ten years later in ninety. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what you what were you doing before this? Well, among other things, I went to school in Chicago. And, uh, and I studied something that I think has served me well ever since. It was an offshoot of uh, philosophy. It was uh, in the, the, what they call the New Collegiate Division at the University of Chicago. And, um, and I got to think about almost anything. And yet nothing immediately tangible or practical. And so coming out of that program, I realized I needed to do something to get my hands dirty, something I could do, and it took me quite a while. It wasn't until 1980 uh, that I realized that wine might be something that really interested me. And in 1982, um, typical American, I wanted to go off and study wine making. 1982. I was fortunate that the school that I chose, A, I was very fortunate they accepted me. <laughs> 
there in the south of France, in Montpellier, and B, that they said to me, you know what, it's not about winemaking, but it's about wine growing, and you need to study viticulture. And I said, I'm a kid from the suburbs, I don't know anything about farming. <laughs> and they said, you're in. <laughs> Time to learn. And so that was the beginning uh, that, that changed my perspective on what it was I thought I was doing. Because, of course, I thought I was learning about winemaking, uh, but, uh, but I got a, a solid grounding in grape growing and then little by little I could see how one connects the dots between the vineyard and the cellar until it's really one integral uh, process that begins in the soil and ends in the glass. You know, there's that idea, uh, very, very French idea of the vigneron. Yeah, You're the carer is. of the vine and yeah. the wine takes care of itself. But you're definitely um, doing a lot of things in, in the cellar as well to, to make sure that your wines are what you want them to be. You're, you're doing your blending. and how, how do you see that kind of marriage between the two? You know, uh, it's, it's an evolving thing, and, and I've been lucky. So I've been able to work in the same place for over 25 years um, and to get to know the flavor of the vineyard. I've also been lucky to be able to work with people who've been here almost as long as I have. And so both in the vineyard and in the cellar, uh, we have, an, we have a, a, an accrued experience of how it all goes. And we realize it's not about winemaking. Despite what almost all of uh, the world of wine thinks, uh, the wines that are most interesting really taste of the place. And so uh, in our choices of when to pick the grapes, we're looking for the, that moment of what you might think is peak expression. And we get to know our vineyard, so it's easier for us to do because we're walking around here. Um, and then in our wine making, it's really a pretty gentle transformation. We're trying not to inflect the wine too far one way or the other. Uh, and in the end, you mentioned blending, because the Cane 5, of course, is a blend. Um, and everything we do is a blend. Uh, we're selecting for our Cane 5 the wines that most uh, typify the vineyard and the vintage of that year, and then in the blend, assembling them as they best fit together. So in fact, the vineyard is telling us how it's gonna go, and every year it's gonna be somewhat different depending upon which block. For example, a cold year is going to like these south-facing blocks that we're looking at, whereas in a, in a hot year, we may actually be looking more for the cooler north-facing blocks. And different vin vineyard Parts, different varieties, different selections work out differently every year. You, you seem to think of, you know, when when if if I were to take a photo, yeah, of 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 your vineyard from above and yeah. see each of these different blocks all yeah. around, yeah. people might think of, you know, that is that vineyard over there and there's this vineyard yes. over here. Yes. But you're seeming to think of the entire property as one vineyard. Is that true? I am, and yet, if from a Burgundian perspective, you would right. see it as, as many different terroirs and uh, they'd be closely related but they they nonetheless would be distinct so sure. but what you're thinking of when you're, you're you're making your blends and want to express the terroir or the vineyard you're thinking of it as a whole rather than as that burgundian style of yeah. these three rows are one right. vineyard and those four over there yeah, are another yeah. vineyard well in fairness most of the sites in Burgundy represent, you know, two to five to ten acres. Um, and here we're looking at 90 acres of grapevines. And so 
there should be many different, and there's dramatically different exposures, as I just said, and as you're pointing out. Yet, all the wines that seem to come from this place taste differently than even those of our neighbors. Enough so that there's enough family resemblance that we could look at this, if you want, as kind of a terroir 1A. Okay. Really basic. And do you practice organic farming, biodynamic at all, any of that? You know, we have slowly, uh, over 25 years, become organic, and we're certified in that. And uh, But we didn't do it to have a label, and we didn't do it to talk about a religion. Uh, we do know something about uh, biodynamic uh, farming as well. And what we are most interested in is the health of the soil, something that it's hard to think about at first. We always talk about the, what we can see, the grapevine. Sure. But uh, what's under the surface is perhaps the most important part. And uh, biodynamics can lead to some of the healthiest vineyards I've ever seen. So, so that part, i totally, totally with it. Um, as far as the, uh, the, your conversion to organic mm-hmm. over those 25 years, what changes have you seen? I think, the, I think the last and the most important one is back to the soil coming back to life. Um, and that is not only about not using herbicides, uh, but also about uh, not using chemical fertilizer. Uh, chemical fertilizer is not in itself toxic, but it might be in a simplistic sense likened to feeding yourself on, on Coca-Cola and French fries. Sure. Um, and... Uh, it disrupts the natural ecology of the soil. So, so I started by getting rid of synthetic uh, chemicals mainly to protect the guys. Uh, but increasingly, I was interested in the ecology of the vineyard. But it was only 15 years ago that I really started thinking about the soil. So that's a, a more recent thing. And a lot of times when you look at a vineyard, you see nothing but row after row after row of grapevines and here in your vineyard uh there's patches of trees and and do you find that that um that diversity helps uh deliver uh, a different quality of grape for sure i mean there's a couple things to say i don't know about different quality of grape but the challenges that we all face in 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 the world of fine wine is we believe in old vineyards, right? Yeah. And we also are doing what amounts to a monoculture. And like it or not, that's what's going on in in all the great wine regions of of the world. And it's a compromise. So having areas that are not um, developed as a vineyard, you know, as you say, open open grass or forested, um, that's good. but I think we have to look at each of our vineyards and think about the ecology within it as well and recognize myself, I'm going to say monoculture is the reality and thus anything else we're growing in the middle of those roses is there to help balance that, that out. Oh, that's interesting. It's so often you think of monoculture and you almost think of it as a negative. Yeah. And here you're saying, well, we, we're, we have that diversity within the the, the 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 vineyard in order to promote what's in order to promote the monoculture yeah because because fine wine really is about vineyards that have been there in a long in a particular place for a long long time and they are a monoculture and we have to embrace that reality and then try to compensate for it uh, because we can't we can't undo that um, 
little patches of vineyard surrounded by forests such as we have might even be a privilege. Sure. But it looks a little bit like, you know, you're in the wilderness. Yeah, it definitely has. Uh, uh, if you came up here well before these vineyards were planted, it wouldn't look too much different than it does today. Not a lot, but we know that humans have always uh, have always had an impact on their environment, whoever it was that was living here. And before it was a vineyard here, we were a sheep ranch for a hundred years. And so we know that uh, sheep are grazing. You can see the traces of, of the grazing up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's always something going on. We're not, any of us are innocent of our <laughs> impact on, on nature. So could we head back down to the winery, talk a little sure. bit about winemaking? Yeah. Great. We hopped into Hall's car and drove the hilly, curvy, sometimes thrilling dirt road back to the winery. During the drive, we talked more about terroir and viniculture, but as we approached the winery, the discussion turned to Hall's philosophical approach to tasting wine and how he puts that philosophy into practice. I, I like uh, to just show you pretty much the naked wine, even okay. though I believe that in truth, to enjoy a wine, you have to be able to sit with it and you have to be able to have it with a meal. And, and so it takes hours. And the wines that are most interesting are ones that truly do evolve over hours. And so there's more and more to learn about the wine as, as, as the evening goes on or the day. So that's, that's my idea, that it shouldn't tell its story all at once, right? Mm -hmm. Those wines are one, often one-dimensional and not very interesting. Well, those wines, if we're saying the ones that do tell their story all at once, it's because of our culture. And it's not specifically an American culture, but it's a modern culture that that wants to know what we're getting. We've done a lot of wine reviews and wine critics and scores and everything else, and most wines basically get about 15 seconds. Right. So because they're only given 15 seconds, they have to get it out there. It's like a casting call. Mm -hmm. And they've got 15 seconds to make their statement. And so I think it's the dynamic of reviewing and judging wine that has led to a particular style that we find really all over the world. I found it very interesting. I was in a wine shop yesterday, big wine shop, big chain. And a guy was pushing a cart down the aisle and he said to his wife, oh look, this wine is labeled as such and such magazine's best buy. Right. And it went right into the cart. No thought mm -hmm. at all, right. right into the cart. And I, I found that that moment very intriguing. There was just no thought about what he was buying. It just had some label that may or may not have even been true. But it, despite all that, you know, wine is maddeningly complex. I mean, that's why you're out here telling stories. Absolutely. Is because, uh, you know, what other category of anything we might buy or enjoy or drink or eat, you know, would you have not thousands, but a hundred thousand different possible things. No way we can find our way through it without people like you. The truth is, it's, you know, in the Napa Valley alone, we have a thousand wineries and maybe five thousand wines. Wow, in this little and three we, mile by 28 mile. And we can go next door to Sonoma yeah. and repeat that and continue through the state of California and the United States grows a lot of wine, but relative to the old world, we're nothing. Yeah. So, sure. so just expand it, and it's a universe of, of, of wines, most of which we'll never get to know. Mm -hmm. 
So what's a guy supposed to do? Pushing a cart down an aisle? Right. right. Pity the guy. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it's hard. It's a good point. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we tasting here? Okay. So I wanted to show you a wine that was 10 years old. This is from 2006. It's called Cane 5. And, uh, you know, it's obviously was bottled a long time ago. It's been sitting around in the bottle. And I thought it was a great way to introduce to you um, the way we approach wine, which is to say, I don't think you should find anything particularly dramatic here. Um, it, it, you know, it's not inky black. Uh, no. It is evolved, but it's obviously not falling apart. It's got a lot of youth left to it. So Definitely, it's, it's for a wine that's 10 years old with very little oxidation around the rim. And like you said, it's not inky black. It's not a huge body wine at all. No, and and then on the nose, you know, what is it going to smell like? Mm. At first, nothing in particular, right? You're not going to say, oh, I smell old. Nothing you know, jumps out immediately. Fruit. Right, nothing jumps out. And the descriptors, you know, often people say, well, I don't know what this smells like or that smells like. Maybe you don't have to. The idea is it doesn't smell just like fruit, and it doesn't smell just like barrels. It doesn't smell like its ingredients. Right. Rather, it's it's something else. I mean, wine is, is the outcome of fermentation, so it's been transformed. It's no longer just grapes. In the same way that a cheese would not be just milk, right? Mm -hmm. it is, it's something else. Or if you were to have a cured meat, like a prosciutto, you don't say, well, I'm smelling, you know, pork. Yeah, it doesn't no. necessarily smell like that, right? No, so it's fermented, and it's evolved, and 10 years old. Well, it's beautifully integrated. And for me... Texture is the most important thing. I think we learned this in red wine, but it's true in white as well. Um, it's not the power. It's not the the grab. It's the flow of the wine. It's the feeling on the palate and always the finish. And that's one thing, again, as I say, wine gets 15 seconds. And I would say the first wine on our palate in the morning, perhaps after we've had coffee, <laughs> you can't always expect it to be immediately pleasurable, but you get a good view of what that wine is. And even though you have a long working, tasting time ahead of you, I encourage you to keep it on your palate just a little bit longer. Don't drink it necessarily, but just watch it. It's not always about the aromatics, it's just the overall feeling of the mm -hmm. wine. It's, it's lively. It's really yeah. lively. It's bright. You don't always expect that from a, a, a 10 year old, uh, California uh, Bordeaux blend. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might think that those are becoming a little more right. leathery and earthy as opposed to this, this bright, delicious fruit. And this is, you know, it's almost it's almost spicy, but mm -hmm. but it's not it's not hot per se. No, and it's not painfully tannic. It's not the big red mm -hmm. one, and I would say it's definitely not sweet. With it. Oh, by no means. So this is wine that really wants food because these the flavors will brighten up your palate in the course of a meal. They'll cleanse the palate mm -hmm. without weighing down, without being heavy, uh, I think is a point. Uh, yeah. Not to be heavy. Right. And yet um, a wine of this genre you know, is not a made wine in the sense because if you make the wine and you're thinking about the outcome of a critical review, you would never 
you'd never do this. You'd go for more ripeness, you would go for uh, more extraction, you'd probably have more impact from the barrel because you need to create that dramatic impact in those 15 seconds. So, I want to take a step back here, you said it was kind of interesting. Um, you said you wouldn't make this wine thinking about a critical review. Yeah, in this way we're letting it do what it, it will do rather than forcing it into the stereotype of what's expected. Mm-hmm. And how has that worked for you? Well, I think some people understand it and some don't. Fair enough. Honestly, a lot of uh, people visiting the Napa Valley are not quite sure what they're supposed to like, and everybody's busy telling them, and then you find certain wines that appear to be out of step with, with the current mainstream, and, and they're, not, they're a little bit lost. Mm-hmm. So we have, I would say, uh, wine lovers who have uh, gotten interested in wine um, without being instructed by publications and others. And then there's people who've done it all and gone way beyond it. And they also find a wine like this and you know, it speaks to them. Mm-hmm. Well, this, uh, this wine speaks for sure. This wine is the wine that you definitely want to give that hour and a half, two hours, and right. experience it, its evolution over that time. Because it will change. Oh, it will yeah. change in the glass, you know, it's only 10 years old, the wine could go for easily another 20 years. I oh, would have, easy. I would have never said that much when I started in 1990 or 91 or 92, but now that I've been here that long and seen how these wines develop, I know that they do. Has, has, has winemaking changed in that time that maybe has sort of edged that yeah, timeline forward or few, wider? You know, despite everything, I know that even at Cane, we probably picked the grapes at a little higher sugar and higher alcohol than we used oh, to. Dude. But the vines, the vines are different vines. They're trained closer to the ground, as you saw, and they ripen differently than they did 25 years ago. Uh, it was 20 years ago when we really stopped adding yeast. Mm. Okay. And, uh, and it wasn't specifically about indigenous yeast, but that was certainly part of the idea. But it's honestly after that that we learned how the wine develops in, in the fruit when you don't add yeast. That's more interesting than the yeast or not yeast. Yeah, I, I talked with... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Brianne Day. She's a young winemaker in Oregon, uh-huh. and she talk, She she does all all native fermentation, uh-huh. and she said, you know, when you introduce this, introduce yeast in uh, in order to to to, to ferment, from a, you know, it's you're buying a product. She says it, right. it just sort of homogenizes everything. Yes, and you lose that that terroir. That the native yeasts are part of your terroir. I'm sure she's right about that. I also would would add, though, that when the wine is about the winemaking, in the way that you just described it, whenever it's about the winemaking, or even about the blend of varieties, in essence, it's a recipe. And, and what you have is, in fact, a product, some sort of a manufactured product. And if the, and if the wine comes from a place perhaps the less um, uh, input in the cellar will lead to a wine that is more specifically about that place. Right, right. 
But I'd add another detail. This is kind of geeky, but when you don't add yeast, with especially with uh, uh, red wine, where the wine's going to be on the skins for some time, the fruit doesn't die. And uh, the yeast have a way of kind of short-circuiting the process, but the fruit will ferment itself up to a point as the bacteria and the yeast are multiplying. And eventually the microbes take over. But at first the fruit is fermenting itself. And that's something that is lost uh, if you add yeast or if you do what people like to do, a cold soak, because all of those uh, enzymatic life processes within the barrier shut down. Mm -hmm. And so allowing the fruit to do its own thing actually is a factor in the way these wines taste. Mm -hmm. So here, I'm showing you now this cuvee, the NV12. It's a blend of two vintages. Um, it's also intentionally a lighter style than what we just tasted. Um, and so again, you can see through it. Uh, it's a little sign of evolution, but 2000, NV12, 2012, 2011, two vintages. Explain to me, before we get into tasting this wine, explain yeah. to me where the concept for, pardon the pun, <laughs> right. for, for the uh, non-vintage uh, sure. wines came from, because it's obviously yeah. very atypical of the area. Well, this is a longer answer that I think you should probably edit out, but okay. I'll just say that... Um, when was it that we became obsessed with single variety and single vintage wines? Because it came before us. It happened uh, in the 40s and the 50s in the New World. Yeah, era. yeah. Prior to that, we had wines with generic names like Chablis and Burgundy. And that had nothing Claire, to do with Chablis or Burgundy. Had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with these classical wine regions. And, um, and we never mentioned the variety, or almost never, and rarely mentioned the vintage. And most of those wines were honestly not very good. And, um, and in the New World, uh, back to the theme of, of, of your uh, show, rather than pretend to be Chablis when you're not, why don't we talk about what variety we are? And it was known and had been known that the very best wines had a vintage date. It was typical, though, that it was only the very best vintages that had a vintage date. Right. And you can right. see this still in Champagne and in Port. But every year isn't a vintage. But in most wine regions today, every year has a vintage on it. I was trained in Europe, and I was taught that discreetly, despite everything, if a vintage is particularly challenging, one might want to blend another vintage, not make a non-vintage wine per se, but one might want to work with more than one vintage. And so in 1998, a cold, wet year here in the Napa Valley, I had a lot of beautiful 1997, and I thought, why not blend these two vintages together? Now, in our world, we have no other way to call it than, say, non-vintage. But in fact, it was a blend of just 97 and 98. And we've carried that tradition forward now, uh, right through uh, 2016. So we've done it nearly 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's a blend of two vintages. And so if I'm looking at the label, it says NV12. Yeah. I can expect it to be 12 and 11. Yeah. So whatever the previous yeah. vintage is. Yeah. That's the way it is with us. 
there's no legal meaning to all of this, right? But that's the cycle, and and you want to know the age of the wine. You want to know when it was bottled. We write all that on the, on the bottle anyway. And is it 100% Cabernet? No, it's a blend of Merlot first, and then Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and it's a blend of Mountain and Valley too. But let's look. It's not a big wine. You can see through it again. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you love if you love the wines of let's say Burgundy or Piemonte, they're not all inky black either, are they? And don't expect to have a big, oaky, sweet wine here. Oh, earth hits me first. Mm -hmm. On the nose. And you say earth, and we could say funky, or we could say it smells uh, mushroomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mushroom earth. Those are it's, it's, it's not a single thing. For us, a wine is still fermented and it, it, it can be about complexity. It's never about one single thing. The opportunity to blend two vintages, in this case 11, a cold year, 12, a warm year, um, can also help uh, build complexity and allow us to find a balance on the mm-hmm. palate. It's got that lovely lushness that Merlot has mm-hmm. without being heavy. Yeah. Right. So and it doesn't get flabby. Sometimes those big lush Merlots get a little flabby. The still has that kind of bright acidity right. um, with that lush velvety thing. Yeah, and it's uh, about 13.5% alcohol. So... This was our perfect Thanksgiving wine. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of wines you can have for Thanksgiving, but this is a sort of a style that I think fits. Not too heavy, uh, not too dominant or imposing. Works with an array of flavors. The wines that uh, we most enjoy don't feel like they were made with a heavy hand. Right. But uh, they should taste of a place, and they should, a wine like this, as it turns out, you know, no matter what one did, you couldn't perhaps do it anywhere else than here in Napa and Sonoma. And then this one, the Cane 5, I think really, you'll see, probably tastes the way it does because of the Cane Vineyard. And that's, you know, closing the loop on that long discussion. Mm-hmm. So this is 2012. And it is vintage dated. <laughs> Vibrant, youthful color. Yeah, our wines evolve slowly. Uh, and so even though 2012, you know, many of our neighbors have already moved on to selling 2014 uh, for us. This is the current old, release? This is just, barely. There's a, I, I like to describe it as an 80s style Napa cab. It's a little mm-hmm. green. There's a, it's not afraid to have a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. It is, vegetal. it is green, but I'd, I'd be careful about how to describe it. I was going to say I almost smell uh, scotch broom or juniper. Uh, okay. It's not... It, it's it's more floral. It's a than, very green note. Yeah. Very green. And yet uh, in the world of particularly Napa Cab, everybody's afraid of green because green means vegetables. Right. And... I think green could also be herbal. Green could be uh, thyme or um, bay leaf or... Yeah, for sure. 
And there's a certain freshness to this. It's nothing about how we make the wine. It is just what it is. And mm -hmm. what we find is of, of the wines growing uh, within our AVA, Spring Mountain District, the, the cane vineyard um, consistently uh, yields among the greenest and most aromatic of all the wines. Hmm. Even though Spring Mountain in general is, is somewhat foresty, almost all the wines up here have a little bit of a foresty note. This is more mm, the foresty. That's thing. interesting. I just tasted it, and saying that foresty really comes through on the palate. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have picked it out had you not said it right when I was tasting. And that's the challenge of of honesty versus the power of suggestion is knowing that I'm not you know, manipulating you or bamboozling mm -hmm. you about this. Because I think it's in, it's important to have your own own impressions and not just have people tell you what you're tasting. Yeah. Um, while it's foresty, that's by no means to say there's not fruit there. The fruit sure. is lively and vibrant and um, again, like all of your wines, even for, well, I mean, young for your wines, um, it's really well integrated. Nothing in, in fact, that is one of the thoughts in our uh, blending is that we don't want anything to stick out. We're just getting used to this. We've, we've been selling 2011 and really love the vibrancy of, of the cool vintage 2011. And, and obviously this is a more generous year, mm -hmm. a little bit more lush. Uh, but even now, you know, we're watching it change over the months that go by. I like the slippery entry. It's not, it doesn't have a big grab. At the right, it's not the attack, is it? Huge, it sort of welcomes itself and mm -hmm. lets itself uh, get to know you over, over, over the few seconds of the sip. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's delicious. Tasting it against the six, which is mm -hmm. six years older, um, you can still see that it's, it's the same wine, just younger and more vibrant. Yeah, they will never be identical. No. But, uh, but yeah, no, these are, these are two, two good years. Integrated yeah. again, great acid. Um, there's tannin there, but the kind of tannin that's not, you know, coating the whole front of your teeth. Right. Um, really nice. Again, not dramatic. No, no. So we find that wines like this, I mean, this, you've talked to enough people and sellers, these things almost do make themselves. Uh, we want to pick before we see the fruit shriveling up. Right? We're watching the leaves change color. We're watching the berries soften. And uh, we pick the grapes. We put them in the tank. Uh, they maybe take a week to start fermenting. And then uh, with uh, Francois, we'll be tasting and deciding. And Francois the guy. Uh, he associate wine. He's associate winemaker. Uh, we decide when to drain the tank, separate it from the skins. The wines go to barrels ferment out and then we taste through all the individual wines because we'll have a couple dozen wines there mm -hmm. uh, because as you mentioned it's a pretty large vineyard lots of different exposures and we pick out the ones that really do seem to tell the story of the vineyard and the vintage and piece it together and there you go are we going to taste the concept sure sure you taste that to. because i i'm almost consider this a, a corollary to the king five because 
we, as you know very well, driving up here at the end of a dead end road <laughs> on a mountain top. When, when you drive up here, you drive up this mountain road and you get to a sign that says end and then you continue to drive for about another mile and then you get up to Kane. <laughs> That's great. And so, so we get to live in our bubble, right? Mm-hmm. This is an example of grapes grown down in the valley. What would the wine taste like if the grapes didn't grow here? Okay. That's what this answer is. And so you're purchasing these grapes? These are but, all purchased. But you're working, you have a vineyard manager that works with the growers or? You know, there's a lot of bandwidth in what people, you know, try to do. We visit our vineyards and we work with the exact same rows, the exact same vines year after year. In most cases, 10 years and more. So we know the spot really well. Uh, we... Uh, after a few years of experience, we start to provide what I would like to think of as diplomatic suggestions. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but we don't imagine that uh, we know exactly what to do. We also know that uh, the people we work with have different teams and different mindsets than we do ourselves, and we can't totally change their culture to accommodate what we believe in. Mm-hmm. So we want to live with those people in their milieu and uh, observe and maybe make small adjustments but but we don't claim to manage somebody else's vineyard. Fair enough. On the other hand we do decide when to pick and uh, you know things like dropping crop sometimes irrigation. I've made mistakes telling people what to do though. <laughs> yeah, so, tell them what to do with their own land, huh? Let's learn first. Yeah. Let's observe. So, so this fruit here is Cabernet Sauvignon. It's uh, about three quarters Cabernet, almost legally could have been called Cabernet, um, and it's growing mainly in Rutherford, and it's growing in in really really good sites along the edges of the valley. Uh, it's complemented by some Merlot and Franc from uh, the Truchard Vineyard in Carneros, and um, a little deeper and darker in color, huh? Mm-hmm. But still not brooding. Not no, brooding. No, I mean, no. you pour somebody a glass of what you call Rutherford, Rutherford Cabernet, this might not be what they expect no. to see. No, no, uh-huh. they wouldn't, especially if they've been tasting the current fashion. Right. But right. If you go back to the 80s, maybe. Well, but, yeah, a different time then, right? But again, we don't, I would say the 80s were also about winemaking. And here, for example, we don't add acid. We don't do right. all the things that were being prescribed by the schools of enology back mm-hmm. then. So, yeah, not we don't push the extraction. You know, it's not, we could easily extract a good deal more. I don't. I don't think we believe that um, the essence of the wine is in is uh, driven by intensity. And I would say, on the nose, uh, even here, people will think green, but it's a different kind of green than the king. You know, it's no longer foresty. No. And green, and you know, we write the real alcohol level <laughs> because it's convenient for us. But the alcohol is the highest here of all the wines. So it's fourteen six. Okay, so high, but not what would be considered high yeah. in, t- in today's uh, right. fashionable wines. No. And fermented dry, of course. There's no sugar. Right. I don't know. 
You have to tell me about the barrel. Do you, you are you picking up the barrel? I don't know I'm getting I'm getting Probably you're gonna say it's it's closed and reduced. Yeah, right? um Maybe a little. Get a little funkiness. I love it though, it's 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 not a fruit bomb in your nose. No. It is funky. It's it's people are a little confused because we, at Cane, we love Pretenomyces, but what we've seen is that in this fruit from the Valley of Florida, um, in our same cellar, the bread doesn't grow. With this fruit? Yeah. It wants to grow in our Cane 5, but not so much in the concept. Brett's a whole thing that I'm fascinated with, and I'm going to talk to you about for another piece I'm doing right. about something else. Right. But for this, I, 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 um, I, I, I love... I love your philosophy about it and the way you approach it and how you use it. Um, this wine is... Yeah, there's no bread growing here, but it's still reduced because mm -hmm. wine loves oxygen uh, and our wines are a little oxygen starved. Mm -hmm. But it's not rubber bandy or... No, but it'll evolve. If you decant this, it'll evolve in the decanter. It's like a spring. It's bouncing back from, from being cooped up in a bottle. Again, they, uh, they, all of your wines have just a, a moderate tannin mm -hmm. with a nice, bright, acidy finish that, that, that just carries it long time, a long time. You just keep tasting it and tasting it. So this concept is vinified identically to our approach with the Cane 5. And, uh, and it's just an alternate take on which part is, is what we do in our cellar versus which part is what's going on in the vineyard. So again, we don't add yeast, we just let it ferment, finish it off in barrels, and there it is. And the wine is not supposed to be about the barrel, the exact same kinds of barrels as for the Cane 5. And wine's not supposed to be per se about a blend, but it is about a place. So this is a, a Cane concept that is about the Benchland which I would say is classic Napa, classic Napa for Cabernet. And the Cane 5 is about the Cane Vineyard, which is unto itself. Yeah. Well, outstanding. Um, Chris Howell of Cane, thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk with you, to learn about your philosophy of, of the vineyard and of the winery, and that philosophy definitely comes through and shines through in the glass with your wines. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 